and welcome to the Bunker USA with me, Chris Jones. President Joe Biden visited Israel this week, even as the missiles continued to be fired by both sides. Whilst he was there, he said this. I come to Israel with a single message. You're not alone. You are not alone. As long as the United States stands and we will stand forever, we'll not let you ever be alone. While Biden has a firm message, America's political class are rarely on the same page. And this might come as a shock to you, but Donald Trump has been heavily criticised for his response to the conflict, even calling Lebanon-based military group Hezbollah very smart at one point. So what is the US standpoint on this conflict? Could it play a crucial part in securing peace in the Middle East? And if that answer is yes, might that change entirely? if Trump is elected next year. Well, joining me to discuss this more is Associate Professor in Politics and International Relations at UCL, Julie Norman. Julie, how are you? Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Very busy, I imagine, at the moment. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, I think like much of the world. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's um, let's crack on with it and, uh, and chat a bit more about this. Um, let's start um, quite broadly with this. What has been the overwhelming uh, message from the White House over uh, what we've seen in Israel and Gaza over the past week or so? Yeah, well, Chris, Biden came out very strong at the beginning with this unambiguous support for Israel, Israel's right to defend itself. And that's still been the gist of his message, but it has changed a little bit over the last two weeks. And I think in two main ways, one, um, a bit more vocal attention to the humanitarian situation in Gaza. That was in part from feedback from Arab partners and allies in the region, as well as just from the images that we all saw around the world coming out of the Gaza Strip, especially especially after the hospital strike. And the other message that started softly, but I think has become a bit more vocal, is um, nudging a bit more restraint from Israel. And again, that's related to this yeah. um, humanitarian suffering that we're seeing. So um, a journalist in Israel called it a, a sort of a hug that was at once a, a, an embrace, but also a restraint. And I think that's uh, kind of where the Biden administration has landed. Some might see that as too little too late or too much too soon, but that's what they're trying to do right now. And do you think the Democrats are completely behind Biden on, on how he's he's managing this situation? You know, the Democratic Party is interesting. Historically, they have been uh, very pro-Israel, just as the Republican Party is right now. But the Democratic Party has had some shifts in recent years. Um, the more progressive side of the party, younger parts of the party tend to be much more sympathetic to Palestinians. So right now, the polling show Democrats pretty much split about 50-50 on how they're viewing what's happening and how they're viewing Biden's responses. And as I mentioned in the intro, Biden um, has visited Israel now. He's met with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. What is their relationship like? Because it goes back a long way, doesn't it? About 30, 40 years. It does. These are both two statesmen who have been in the business for quite a while. Biden, even before serving as president, was not only vice president, um, but had a very prominent uh, foreign relations role in the Senate. So he's been involved in international relations for a while. He's met Netanyahu multiple times. And the two of them have a pretty um, positive and frank relationship, I would say, that's been tested in recent years, especially over the last um, the last year or so with the internal domestic issues going on in Israel, the pull of the right wing government, et cetera. So there's been some friction. But I think with the events of two weeks ago, they've mutually agreed to put that aside and uh, have kind of come back together and trying to address this crisis. 
And staying on this meeting, uh, Biden said that the US would support Israel, it would um, provide actions and not just just words. What kind of aid have we seen going towards Israel uh, to help them in this conflict? Yeah, so the US already um, commits a little over $3 billion of military aid each year to Israel. Um, What they've been trying to do is fast track that and ramp that up. And much of that aid is in the form of replenishing Israel's um, Iron Dome, the missile defense system, as well as artillery and as well as different um, other weapons, especially precision uh, bombs. They've also been moving military personnel into the area. There's two um, now two U.S. aircraft carriers in the region, and those are mainly to be a deterrent force to Iran, to Syria, to Hezbollah and other actors who might uh, be looking to get involved in this. I would note that Biden's also committed um, $100 million in aid to Gaza for the humanitarian situation. Um, but obviously, that is um, a bit more slow moving. And uh, we're part of their efforts this last week have been to try and get that humanitarian access secured and moving through that border. And I want to talk about that that financial aid, because aid to conflict is something that the Republican Party has been uh, pretty much vehemently against uh, the longer that the Ukraine conflict has gone on and has become a big political debate uh, in the US. How will the Republican Party see Biden pledging even more money to the likes of Israel, a a conflict that the the GOP uh, should really support, considering its backing supports Israel too? Yeah, I think uh, we'll probably see that the um, the more blanket statement of foreign aid is is bad. It will be something that won't stick when it comes to Israel. Likewise, it doesn't usually stick when we talk right. about China, when you talk about the southern border. So a lot of this is somewhat conflict specific. And I think for the Republican Party, they will probably welcome this increased military aid to Israel, as will many in the Democratic Party as well. I'll come back to the GOP in a second, but just to talk about aid um, in this conflict, you kind of touched on it a little bit there. What what about uh, the people that are in uh, Gaza at the moment? What is is the US doing to to potentially help those people, those innocent people who are in uh, such a terrible situation at the moment? I saw that Jake Sullivan was talking about corridors and and trying to open up um, ways out of the Gaza Strip. What kind of aid are we seeing in Gaza from the US? Yeah, so there have been different possibilities that have been explored, but I will say right now the situation in Gaza is extremely, extremely difficult. You have over 2 million people who are already living very densely populated, moved into an even smaller quadrant of this territory. Bombs are falling definitely in the northern part, but also in the south. Um, I think we've seen at the time we're recording over 3,500 casualties. So the situation is extremely grim, and that also, um, not to even mention the uh, cutting off of water, a food of electricity into the strip. So it's an extreme yeah. humanitarian crisis right now. The U.S. has been exploring some different options with allies. They looked into humanitarian corridors, but that is very difficult to um, actually do on the ground. And where they ended up actually focusing more was on just getting aid delivered into the Gaza Strip through the southern Rafah crossing, um, which borders with Egypt. Um, even that has been difficult. The decision that was finally made was that the U.N. would essentially um, raise their flag at the crossing, they would check all the aid trucks coming through, and that would start the release of aid, hopefully um, today on Friday. Let's switch um, over to the reaction from the the GOP now. Has there been any difference in in messaging that we've seen coming from the Republican Party in general? I guess considering what we've we've talked about, you know, um, the, the the GOP largely supports Israel. Is that what we're hearing? 
Well, for the most part, I would say the one exception who is often the exception is is Donald Trump, who yeah. came out with some uh, early comments that were critical of Netanyahu, um, seemed to be somewhat uh, complimentary of Hezbollah, causing, calling them very smart. So he did get a lot of pushback to that and uh, by members of his own party, as well as by Democrats. So um, I would say, you know, Trump often making statements such as this wouldn't have happened under his watch, such like things such as this. But for, for most Republicans, it's been support for Israel and actually some of Biden's usually harshest critics actually acknowledging that they appreciate what he's been doing on this conflict from their point of view. Yeah, Donald Trump causing controversy. Who would have thought? Um, <laughs> Who would have thought? Exactly. And let's talk a little bit more about that because I saw a report from Politico that described his approach to this as um, tone deaf. Um, two questions here. He claims uh, that if he were in office, this might not have happened. We've heard that loads of times before. Do you think there's any truth in that? But then also, um, he may very well get elected in in 2024. It's a scary thought, but it it might well happen. Do you think that things could get worse if Trump were to get elected? And we've heard his messaging on Netanyahu and Hezbollah as well. Do you worry for this conflict if he does get elected in 2024? Yeah, so both good questions. I would say the first, would this have still happened under Trump? Yes, I really do not think that um, Hamas was considering Trump or, you know, what was happening in U.S. politics when they were planning their um, attacks. And I don't think that Israel's response would be different um, with with whoever was was in office right now. Um, And in terms of Trump coming into the White House potentially again in 2024. I do think that one thing this conflict has underscored is the um, the need for responsible leadership on the world stage and how quickly things can shift and spiral. I mean, it was only a few weeks ago everyone was talking about the new new Middle East and the stability and how it's finally quiet and things just change so fast. And that's not a time when you want someone who is volatile, who is unpredictable, and who you know is uh, maybe hot and cold with with some allies. So with all that said, I would say Trump had pretty good relations with Netanyahu, and I think that would probably be restored. He also had some positive relations with Arab states that the Biden administration has tried to build on. Um, but in general, as a statesman, um, Trump is seen as both inconsistent and unpredictable, and that's that's difficult in times of crisis. Are you, um, are you surprised that we've seen both parties really uh, go quite big on this and send a lot of Quite similar messaging. It's a horrible question, but you know, when something like this, it always there's always the opportunity for it to get politicised, isn't there? Um, and when these things happen, do we often see the Republicans and the Democrats um, be quite cautious, almost in their messaging, and 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 uh, try and put out the messaging that goes towards their voters? That might seem like quite an obvious question. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, every party is going to try and, and spin this to how they, they want their supporters to see it. I will say um, the Israel-Palestine conflict is um, it's a tricky one for anyone, I think, to commentate on in, in the political sphere yeah. as well. Um, again, it's not something that there's a sharp divide between the parties. Um, it's, you know, it's not as much of a, a clear cut issue. It's something that delves into the identities of many people of both parties. And it's something that has repercussions in different communities in the U.S. as well. And we heard Biden acknowledge that with trying to caution against both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia as this conflict continues. Yeah, that's something we've seen pretty much uh, all over the world. We've seen that in, in, in London and we've seen that in Paris as well and in various other, other countries. How difficult do you think it will be for the White House to contain um, 
hate for both Islamophobia and um, anti-Semitism? Yeah, unfortunately, in times like this, we do tend to see a rise in both of those things, which is a sad, unfortunate fact. I think that Biden was right to call it out specifically in the speech yesterday and say to Americans, you know, we see you, we hear you. And this is not, you know, something that that we want to see, um, you know, become become part of our societies and communities and whatnot. And I think states in Europe have tried to do the same. I do think there is a. as a bit of a slippery slope there, especially in, in Europe, where free speech rules and laws are a little bit different with some um, crackdowns on protests and demonstrations, even some that are just pro-peace and that kind of thing. Whereas in the U.S., we don't see that as much. So it's it's a tricky line to walk. But again, it's um, it's a sad truth in our communities that this happens and is happening. And I think it was right of Biden to call that out. Let's broaden this out to a global stage and talk about the reaction from the world um, in terms of what they think of US intervention in this conflict, because there are, as you've mentioned, um, a lot of intricacies and a lot of countries that are involved in this conflict. Um, and one of those is is Iran. Um, and the US pretty much has the worst possible relationship with Iran that it could possibly have. And they've not really spoken to each other face to face for quite a long time. Um, How important do you think it is that that relationship does get better between the US and Iran? Because the potential for this to get even worse, even worse than it already is, is massive, isn't it? It absolutely is. And I would say Iran is a really key actor in how this conflict um, proceeds from here, especially in terms of Iran's backing of Hezbollah on the northern border of Israel from southern Lebanon. Um, So that is definitely one area where the U.S. has wanted to deter any kind of additional action. Um, I'm not sure relations will get better between the two, but there is certainly an interest in them not getting worse. Um, The U.S. is concerned more globally about Iran's relations, not only with proxies in the region, but also increasingly with Russia um, and possibly with other actors. So they are looking very closely at that. Um, and obviously um, just not wanting to see things escalate. There have been some attempts for confidence building. So back in September, we saw kind of a a prisoner exchange and release and a release of some funds to Iran and that kind of thing, um, which was, I think, necessary. Um, Many many did not agree with that, but I, I think trying to keep those channels open when we can so that we do have some kinds of relations when crises like this hit is important. And the U.S. often works through intermediary groups to reach Iran, such as Qatar or other states that we can contact um, that we have better relations with. What do you think Iran's reaction to uh, Biden's visit to Israel would have been? Would they have seen this as an escalation almost? I mean, Biden, I think, went partly to show solidarity with Israel, but also partly to um, kind of push back and, and again, deter Iran from any actions. And I think Iran certainly got that message. For them, they will, you know, frame this as U.S. support for Israel and whatever Israel does. And I think the U.S. has opened themselves up to that criticism. And so they will probably get it from Iran as well as from many other people in the region and around the world. So, yes, I would say Iran is going to exploit the U.S.'s role in this as much as possible and, again, has a lot of their own interests involved in this as well. Um, I think it's notable that right now Hezbollah has not been fully activated. Again, things are very tense on that northern border, but we're not there yet. And likewise, even right after the 
atrocities and the massacres on October 7th, Israel was um, restrained and not immediately blaming um, Iran. They noted connections between Iran and Hamas, but didn't automatically say this was an Iran planned attack. Um, and I do think that shows both sides are are aware of how quickly this could escalate and the repercussions for the region and the world if they do. And we've we've heard a lot about um, Hamas uh, during the, the past you know two weeks or so. We, it's, it's been constantly Hamas um, coverage. You mentioned Hezbollah there, um, based in, in, in Lebanon. What, what is their role in this, and how, how does how does the U.S. combat against what their role is? Yeah, so Hezbollah is a distinct group from Hamas. They started in the 1980s in Lebanon, partly in response to the Israeli presence there, as well as to Western influence in the region more broadly. They are much more directly backed by Iran and always have been. Um, They are very well trained, they are very well equipped, and they are very well armed. So historically, they have been seen as sort of a greater military threat to Israel than even Hamas, which usually has carried out smaller scale operations. Um, With that said, since 2006, Hezbollah and Israel have had almost a a deterrence relationship between the two. I think Iran keeps Hezbollah on that border as very strong. Um, It's known that Israel could take very strong action against Iran if if they chose Mm -hmm. to do so. And so there's sort of this... um, this deterrence um, uh, status quo that has held for over 15 years now. And it's a question if that will now change. It just seems like there's too many groups, <laughs> you know, involved in this in this conflict. And it, and that's why it's so difficult to understand, isn't it? You know, that for, for someone who hasn't paid much attention uh, to this, despite the length that this conflict has been going on for, um, it almost seems impossible to negotiate a situation that suits everyone. And, and and I suppose that's almost the task that the likes of Anthony Blinken is being tasked with um, right now. How important do you see his role in, in, in this and also uh, his counterparts from, from the rest of the world, the UK as well? Yeah, I've seen it as as quite important in the short term. I do think that his visits to different actors and allies in the region over the last week was very instructive for reshaping necessarily the U.S.'s uh, mm. stance on this issue, and again encouraging this more restrained approach. You know, more attention to the humanitarian conditions, which the U.S. was maybe just um, underplaying and, and under acknowledging at the start. Um, but moreover, for the long run, it's going to be really important because, as you said this conflict and the the deeper roots of this conflict are not going away. And I think many in Washington and elsewhere have been okay to just let it simmer at its status quo for quite a while. And one thing that I think this current tragic crisis is underscoring is the need that there does need to be more attention to actually exploring some new possibilities for for possible resolutions, for possible negotiations. I don't think any of those are going to be coming around anytime soon, um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't start thinking ahead and talking more seriously about them. Um, Because as you said, this is a a situation where there's many different actors that have um, emerged over the decades and over the years. Um, When you have a situation of a um, stateless people, situation of occupation, um, and the different resistance that spirals out of that, and that just becomes unsustainable at some point. 
And then just just to finish off, there there are a range of conflicts going on around the world. It's, it's impossible to keep track of the amount of them. But um, in the Middle East, there are there are a, a, a lot too. You know, you look at Yemen, for example. There's um, war still going on on there. With that in mind, and with the outbreak of this um, Israel Hamas conflict, how important is it for global security that? this particular conflict is nipped in the bud as quickly as possible before it is given the chance to get worse than it already is. Yeah, I would say having worked in the region a lot, I would say that Israel-Palestine is very much a a sort of epicenter for a lot of other regional conflicts that occur. That's not to say that that others don't have their own root causes as well. But the Israel-Palestine conflict is one that is one of the most um, longstanding, you know, going back decades. It's one that reverberates widely around the region in terms of passions and solidarity and in terms of how the countries relate to each other. So I do think that whatever happens in Israel-Palestine just by nature affects the rest of the region and that by nature affects the rest of the world. So that's one reason that I think we are seeing so much focus on this right now and uh, increasing attention to this need to de-escalate this before it becomes even more widespread. Yeah, as you say, this has been going on for uh, years and years and uh, the potential for it to go on even longer is great. So, you know, the importance of de-escalation does seem really important right now. Julie, uh, we'll be keeping an eye on this, as I'm sure you will. Thanks for thanks for joining me and sharing uh, your insights with us. Thanks so much for having me. Listeners, if you found this episode interesting, Why Not Back is on Patreon. For just £3 a month, you'll get access to all of our episodes first without ads and much more. But most importantly, you'll be helping to keep independent thinking and unbiased journalism well and truly alive. I'm Chris Jones, reporting from The Bunker. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker USA was written, presented and produced by Chris Jones. With audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker USA is a Podmasters production. Thank you.